Now, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 5, I'm going to read today's uh, scripture in which uh, the teaching is based. I'm going to be reading from verses 4 through 26. Luke chapter 5. When he, that's Jesus, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came, came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the ground in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew that, uh, what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. And this is God's word. Today we're going to look at uh, the first three, the first three narratives of Luke chapter 5. They're like three acts and they show us what the gospel, right, salvation in Jesus Christ, what it really is. And so we got three narratives. Each of them is one point. We have three points. And each of them are going to show us deeper dimensions of God's grace, deeper dimensions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first narrative 
is Jesus with Simon Peter. Now, Jesus is in a boat with Peter as he sat down to teach this large crowd that's gathered around. And, and afterwards, Jesus tells Peter in verse 4, he tells him, put your boat basically out into uh, deeper water and let your nets down, right? Now, Peter's thinking, you're not a fisherman, right? He's looking at Jesus. He's thinking you know, he should really just stay in his own lane. I've been, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. I'm absolutely certain that there's nothing down there, but fine. Let's just humor him. Let's put it down there. And so they let down their net, and there's such a large haul of fish that the nets start to break. So much fish that their partners, James and, and John, he, uh, Peter brings them over. A second boat comes, and when they finish filling both boats, both boats begin to sink. And verse 8, Peter starts to realize who Jesus is. And what does he do? He responds. He falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And Jesus responds essentially like this. Basically what he's saying is, No, I'm not going to go away from you. I'm actually, I actually want you to follow. I actually want you to follow me. I'm going to use you, Peter. And so they left everything behind, and they followed him. Now think. Before this incident, we knew this person, right, to be named Simon. That was his name. Later on, he's almost always called Peter. But here, in between, his name is Simon Peter. That's what, how he refers himself, Simon Peter. Well, at least that's how he's referred to. Why? And it's Luke's way of saying he's changing, the gospel is not just about transformed behavior. You're changing your name. You're changing your status. You're changing your identity. It's about a transformation of identity. And it never happens without a complete renewal of your psyche. And we see this with Peter. It's kind of, Peter, this, this episode here, this narrative, it's kind of a model. How do we, how do we know that? First, Luke, verse 8, if you look at verse 8, Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Salvation begins with what? A deep, resonating, realistic view of yourself, how broken you are, how flawed you are, how sinful you are. Now, I don't know how many of you here have been churched. I don't know how many of you here have come here and you've been a part of the church all your life and you've been very consistent. I don't know, Metro is largely consisting of people who are de-churched, people who've been away from the church for a long time. But I also know that we have a pretty large contingent now of people who've been in the church and who've been there for a long time. It's very easy for us to admit, because it's the Christian thing to do, especially when you became a Christian, to admit that you are a sinner, that you have sinned, that you have flaws, that you're broken in your sinfulness. We can all do that generally. But do you own it? And what I'm saying by that is when someone comes to you and has a critique, not just of how you work, but maybe your character, somebody I actually know pretty well, how do you respond? We bristle, don't we? We don't like hearing that. It, it starts inside and we feel something and you instantly jump to what? You want to be defensive? You have excuses? We immediately jump to blaming other things or other people, maybe the situation. We do that all the time, don't we? Rudolf Otto, he's a German philosopher. One of his seminal, his, his seminal book, published in 1917, is called The Idea of the Holy. It's an amazing book, a fantastic book. And he basically says this. 
when you're in the presence of, of someone or something that is beautiful, when you're in the presence of something perfect, it's one thing to be a basketball player, it's another thing if Michael Jordan walks onto the court, not just today Michael Jordan, but like 20 years ago Michael Jordan, or 30 years ago, if he shows up, but 20 years Michael Jordan's pretty, today Michael Jordan's pretty good, right? Even now, right? If he were to come up and say, you want to play, how do you feel? How do you respond? Rudolf Otto says that when we're in the presence of something beautiful, something perfect, something holy, on one hand, there's a deep attraction. You want to be near that thing. You want to be near that person. We all want to say we know that person. We all want to say we're known by that person. But at the same time, when that person sees you, makes his way towards you, what do you do? Now, we've all been through high school. You go to your first high school dance, what happens? You do your best, you want to look a certain way, you show up to your dance, and we all have a crush or had a crush in high school, right? Um, you see that crush, and he or she, man, you're like captivated by this person. You want to be near that person. You're attracted to this person. But when that person starts to come near, what do you do? Oh my gosh, right? That's exactly what we do. You turn around, you're like, how do I look? How's my hair? You know, I don't have that much hair. How do I look? Uh, you, know, you know, oh my gosh, is that person coming near? Like, what do I say? What do I do? You start to get nervous. Why is that? On one hand, we're captivated. We want to be near this person, but when that person starts to come near you, you want to run away. And Rudolf Otto, in the idea of the holy, what he's saying is that, and this is whether you have an understanding of God or not, because that book was not meant for Christian thinkers. We all understand the concept then of encountering something that is holy. We run when we encounter holiness, what he calls the numinous. We run because it forces us. That person encountering us, that person making their way towards us, it forces us in that moment to confront our own flaws. It makes us feel awful about ourselves. We want to be near that person, but there's a barrier because we start to feel awful about ourselves. We start to feel inadequate about ourselves. We start to feel insecure about ourselves. And think about this. If that's how we are with finite human beings, how much more are we in the presence of a holy God, an infinitely holy God, an infinitely beautiful God? It's why in the Bible, God is often referred to, God often comes as a fire. Why? Because fire is beautiful. It's warm. We like to be near a campfire. But if you get too close, what happens? The brilliance is so brilliant, you burn up. The beauty is so beautiful, you burn up. Fire is beautiful, but on the other hand, it's dangerous. It'll consume you. What does that mean? If you, some of you, you've been here a while now, and you're getting comfortable. You're socially engaged. You're plugged in. But if being here has not brought up some of the deep-rooted issues in your life that have been ruining you and plaguing you, I feel pretty confident in saying that you're not really getting to know the real Jesus. Because once you start to encounter the real Jesus, 
Once you start to encounter real holiness, real beauty, real power, then, like Peter, you're going to say, I'm done for at some point. You're going to say, I'm done for. Please go away from me. You don't want any part of me. You'd be more honest about yourself. You'd be more realistic about yourself. You'd be more realistic about your sin, the burden of that sin, the weight of that sin. It would be very, very specific because you know you've encount- you, it all gets exposed at the sight of something that is wholly beautiful, infinitely beautiful. You're going to recognize that that sinfulness, that little thing that you saw was like a, a flaw, is actually much greater than you ever imagined, and you have an infinite amount of those things in your life. Ah, but then the second thing you'd see is what? There'll be a greater sense of God's love, a greater sense of God's grace, a greater sense of God's invitation. In verse 10, Peter is just so ashamed to be near Jesus, and yet what does Jesus do? He invites Peter. He calls Peter. He says, don't... He knows you're afraid. Don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid. I'm going to use you, Peter. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not ever going to leave you. I'm going to use you. Peter, you're in. So on one hand, when Jesus comes near, when the gospel starts to become more real to you, more personal to you, you're going to see greater depths of your sin than you've ever seen in your life before. And so people's critique is just surface. It's just what they see. It's going to be reasonable. If you're really reflecting on your deeper sinfulness, people's critique of you is going to be much more reasonable. Why? Because you realize you're an even greater sinner than that, than you originally saw yourself. The gospel humbles you. But on the other hand, there's this greater sense of God's love that overwhelms any critique, any critique. There's a greater sense of God's God's presence in your life. That's greater than any self-critique. You don't beat yourself up anymore. There's greater affirmation than you ever dreamed you could ever have access to. And so your psyche is no longer built around what you think is attractive, what you think attracts other people to you, but on the love of God for you, which is incomprehensible because you did nothing to earn it. There was nothing about you that was so beautiful. Why have you chosen me? We don't know. But he did. And he loves. And he affirms. And so there's this greater sense of sin. There's this even greater sense of God's affirmation and love. But thirdly, verse 11, they left everything and they followed him. Now look, many of us, we see our sin. It's greater than ever. But I'm going to submit to you that in a crowd this size, most of us, most of us still have not experienced the love of God to a degree that it has shaped our psyche. That goes for leaders, maybe even pastors. And so we're not, we know we're not Simon anymore, but we're not quite yet Peter either. We're in this kind of Simon Peter world. It's this weird place where we're changing, we're shifting, and we're led to believe that we've already changed, that we've already shifted. That goes for leaders too. 
That goes for pastors. Friends, I've been counseling pastors, leaders, counselors. And one of the biggest things that I've come to see is that most people are still kind of figuring it out even though they think they figured it out. You may get it cognitively, cognitively, but it hasn't sunk in deep enough. The penny hasn't dropped yet in a way where you've been willing and ready to leave everything and follow. You get me? They left everything and they followed Jesus. You have to understand, Peter's a fisherman. He's never had a catch like this before in his life. And Jesus is asking him to leave it behind. This is likely Peter's greatest haul. He's finally on the brink of financial success. Some of y'all investing in Bitcoin, you know what I mean. We're on the brink, you say, right? And Jesus tells Peter, I want you to walk away. Why do they do it? The only reason why they do it The only reason why anybody would do it is because they must have acknowledged that any success that they've gotten, that that haul of fish, it must not have come from us because I've been doing this all night and I got nothing. Helpless. And here's this guy who's never fished, at least not professionally, and look what I have here. It must have all come from Jesus in the first place. Now, real brief because I don't want to confuse you. What this does not mean is if you're a Christian, you got to leave your career. We all got to become pastors. What it doesn't mean is that you got to walk away from your money, walk away from your career. But what it does mean is that when Jesus enters into your life, your relationship with him becomes more important than your career. That means some of you need to make some decisions. That means your relationship with with Jesus is more important than your money. But you hold your money a lot closer than you hold Jesus. That's what that may mean. In a society today where what you do is almost synonymous with who you are, the gospel says you are given an identity apart from any success that you've achieved, your career, your job, your wealth. In fact, your relationship becomes so important, it becomes more important than your work, your family, your spouse, your children, your church even, your local body, your friendships. The gospel makes you totally new. It reshapes you. It transforms your identity. Now, how does it do that? We get to the second story, the second narrative. We have this leper. Now, we got a lot of med students in here, PAs, a bunch of people here in the, in the medical industry. Leprosy in the Bible is very different from what you may see in your clinical studies or your clinical definition of leprosy. They're actually two very different things. Leprosy here, the leprosy that's described here is a skin disorder that's so bad and so debilitating. Debil- you're rotting away. It's so disfiguring that you're basically, your body is literally, it's falling apart. You're disfigured. And, so, and it's often contagious enough, or said to be contagious enough, that if you had it, you were quarantined outside of the city for life. You were completely cast out. Now think about this. We just got through a pretty 
bad season of isolation, a lot of us. A lot of us are still working our way through and processing that isolation in our lives. Because the reality is that when you're not around people, human beings were built to be very social animals. So if you're not around people, you go crazy. You start to go crazy. But in ancient times, lepers were completely isolated for life. You were put out into a colony. You were cast out of the city. You were never allowed to come back into the city. And so not only are you poor, you are left for dead. You were completely cast out, and you may even be crazy. You may have gone crazy because there's nobody around you. And so this man is relationally and socially and psychologically cut off. And because Israel is a religious community, it's a religious country, Lepers were deemed unclean, and so he was cut off from the ability to worship at the temple, which means there was no worship. There was no community. There was no sense of God in his life. So when this leper in verse 12 comes into the town, I mean, he must have pretty much rushed. He blocked every time. I mean, he, he ran through every block that he could, you know, he could basically have for himself. He cut through when he beelined to Jesus went into the town, the people around are, whoa, we don't want any part of this. Everyone is shrieking and gasping, covering themselves. They're reeling and they're, they're retching. This man falls at the feet of Jesus and he asks for healing. What does Jesus do? What does he say? Get this guy out of here. Does he reel back? Oh, gosh, I can't stand this. Is that what he does? No. Everybody else may have done that, and rightly so in that, in that society. That's what they did. In verse 13, he says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. He touched the man. Why? I mean, in the next passage with the paralytic, he doesn't touch him. He doesn't touch that guy. That guy doesn't have a skin disorder that's contagious. That's a paralyzed man, but that's not contagious. Jesus doesn't touch him. Why does he touch the leper? Why does he touch the leper? This is not about physical healing. The, the paralytic man, we're going to read, he has friends. They brought him there. This man is nobody. Jesus touches him. That touch is about healing a man, not just physically, but relationally and socially and psychologically. He's restoring that man's dignity. He's restoring that man's sense of worth. It's very likely that this man hasn't felt the touch of another person in a very, very long time. And so Jesus, what does he do? Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at that risk-taking compassion of Jesus. He touches him and he says, you're good. That's basically what he says, you're good. Go show yourself to the priest. Show him you're clean. Why? Because if you go and show yourself a priest to a priest and a priest accepts you, that means that you're allowed to have community again. You can go inside the temple and worship again. You can connect with God again. What do you see from this? One, there is no risk. There is no distance there is no danger that Jesus is not willing to undergo to undignify himself, to dirty himself, 
to dignify you and to clean you. That's one thing we see. Look at his compassion. Look at that risky, bold, compassionate love of Jesus. But the second thing we see, look at John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Luke chapter 19, he is Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. In modern day times, a tax collector is synonymous with a drug dealer. In Mark chapter 5, you have, or at least that's how they viewed him, the way we, we look at that. Mark chapter 5, you have this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, a menstrual bleeding for 12 years. So just people are just, she's cast out and she's destitute. She's poor. She spent everything she had. They're all outcasts. Those that the world are repulsed by, what do you see? Jesus is drawn to. Those that the world rejects, says, you're out. Jesus says, come on in. I'm going to bring you in. And he doesn't just say, come on in. He touches you and leads you in. That's his pattern. Now, how do you apply that? No lepers here. No, no outcasts that I can see that are, that are worthy of being outcasts at least. How do you apply this? Well, if you think about it, most of our time, most of our energy is motivated by what in life? I mean, why do we work work? Why do we work so hard? Right? Why do we stay committed to all of our obligations the best that we can? Why do we try to show up in front of certain types of people? Most of the time, most of our time, our energy, our resources are motivated by trying to get in. Trying to get in with somebody, some group, and we do everything that we can. We will sacrifice, we will cross a lot of boundaries, moral boundaries, ethical boundaries to get in. And we will find ways to justify. The human heart has no limits to what it will do to justify those boundaries that we cross. The human heart has no limits to, to justify sometimes uh, the ethical uh, or unethical decisions we make. We will pay a price for that. We will sacrifice our dignity. We will sacrifice our morality. We will be willing to go unclean. We will suffer guilt. We will, we will offer our bodies. We will offer our time, sacrifice our families. We will do, and what's the effect? There's greater anxiety oftentimes. It leads to greater anxiety, greater anger, bitterness, jealousy, guilt, manipulation, and being manipulated, we experience that. Depression. They say that this, I say this all the time. They say, scholars, commentators will tell you, right, that this generation is the most anxious and depressed generation in the history of the world. That is not a small statement. In the history of the world. But you know why that's an amazing thing? Because you have more freedom than anyone has ever had in the history of the world. And yet we are more anxious than ever. You have made every decision on your own. You have, you have put down every authority on your own and said, I'm going to do it my way. I'm skeptical of authority, so I'm going to follow my way. I'm skeptical of God. I'm going to follow my way. And it has left us more anxious and more depressed than any other society in the history of the world. But this text is saying that Jesus crossed every boundary not because he needed some sense to, uh, to feel in. He was in. He crossed every boundary. He risked being out. Danger. 
to restore your dignity, to restore your sense of worth, to bring you in. And so to the degree that you trust Jesus, not just trust in Jesus, who he is, what he did, but trust his word. To the degree that you trust what he says, this is the end of wasting your time and energy and resources trying so hard to get in on your own because you are in the ultimate in. It's the in that you've been looking for all your life. You're in. You're already in. This is the end of trying to prove yourself, manipulating others. You know, just even when you go on a date and you look your best, it's a subtle form of manipulation. Because why? You want to, get, you want to be near. But there's a fear of not being accepted. You see, it's that idea of the holy. It comes back. This is the end of proving yourself, lies, desperation for approval, and it's the beginning of real freedom because you can look at your work or you can look in your social circles and you can look at your wealth. You can look at your, your family relationships and you can say these things are all important one by one, but they do not define me. My status, my position, my citizenship is in heaven. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the king. And to the degree that you really trust that, it will change your view, one, of people that you find attractive. Sorry, of people that you find unattractive. It will change your view of that. And two, it will change your view of power and status and wealth and beauty and your privilege. The gospel restores your dignity. And it uses you to restore other people's dignity. It's all because it changes the way you relate to God. Now think about this. Why does it change, change because of the way you relate to God? Religion is what? If I'm good, if I serve hard, if I work hard, if, then I'm in. If I obey, then I'm accepted. Then there is no way, there's no chance that you will ever be willing to hang out with somebody you consider unclean. Because if you hang out with the wrong people or the wrong crowd, if you hang out with the, the outcast circle, their you are going to risk their uncleanness transferring to you. Jesus tells a story in the, in the Gospels of the Good Samaritan. We've all heard the phrase, this man, he's on a road, he's beaten up, he's left for dead, he's bleeding, he's just dying on the road. And here comes a priest, walks by. Here comes a Levite, walks by. Both of them religious people, and both of them avoid this man. Why? Because if they touch him and he dies, or he, just even the state that he's in, they will risk being unclean. What does Jesus do here? He reaches out his hand to the leper, and he touches him. What he's saying by that, the crowd is just disgusted by this. What he's saying to this man is that no matter how unclean you are, no matter how filthy you are, no matter how untouchable you are, no matter how defiled you are, no matter how ugly you are, no matter how destitute you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how bankrupt you are, everybody else, the world will call you a loser, but I am clean and I am the wealthiest person in the world. I am, the, I am so clean that if you get me, you will become clean. That is the end of your inner brokenness. It is the healing of your soul. How do you get it? 
you got to go to the third narrative, the last narrative that we're going to look at today, the paralyzed man. Verse 17, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd at a house. He's teaching. When a paralyzed man brought by his friends come in, or are trying to get into the house, but the house is so crowded they couldn't get through. And I imagine that because he's on this mat, they're trying to get through, and people won't let him in, so they can't get through the door. What do they do? They're going to risk a lawsuit. They climb up to the roof of this house. In ancient times, the roof was always accessible in some ways, but the thing is, they're, they're going in uninvited, and they're tearing up the roof of this house so that they could lower this man down, and they laid this man down right in front of Jesus at his feet. And Jesus looks at him, and in verse 20, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are a couple things that I find, like, disjoint about that, but the religious people, they address one of them. They're upset, because in verse 21, how can Jesus say that he forgives sins? Never mind the fact that that's not what he came for, right? Whoa, sins, I came to walk. Right? That's essentially what they brought him for. But the thing is, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're upset because in verse 21, how can Jesus say that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Wait a second. Forgiveness belongs to God because he's the one that was wronged. How can Jesus say this? And what Jesus is saying, and this is why they were upset, all sins that you commit, every commandment you break today, Every sin that you commit against somebody else is ultimately a sin against me. And it's not the act, it's because you have departed relationally from me. Why do we so much crave the love of another person? So desperately that we're willing to sacrifice things that really God says not to sacrifice. Why do we do that? It's because we've departed from the embrace of God. All sins are against me. It's a hard saying for the Pharisees. That's the name of the series if you're new. The hard sayings of Jesus. It means that you need to marinate in the words that Jesus is saying. You have to marinate in it a, in a, a bit so that the flavor actually soaks in. Really what Jesus is saying is there's only one disease. He's staring at this paralytic man, but really what he's saying is there's only one disease that will really, truly destroy you, really ruin you. There's only one disease that will truly immobilize you. The paralytic, yes, he experienced a disease, and there are lots of barriers getting here, but think about it. Because this man was paralyzed, he got to me. Because this man was paralyzed, he was able to get lowered down the roof to get to me. God worked through that brokenness, through that illness to bring him here. So really, this illness is not the biggest issue. It may be your biggest issue visibly, but there is a deeper greater reality that you need to address. In other words, this, what he's saying is, in order for my power to renew you physically, emotionally, socially, psychologically, you need to be transformed spiritually. And so Jesus responds and says, your sins, he gets right to what the man really needs. Not only am I going to heal you socially and emotionally and psychologically and physically, I'm going to remove the ultimate disease the ultimate barrier that exists between you and God. What does that mean? Many of us here, at some point in our lives, I just know because we've done a survey and there were statistics, 
And we know that there are a lot of people here who are at one point part of the church and had left the church and had now returned. And, and this, is one of your, this is your stop. And you thought you were just going to kind of try it out. And now a year has gone by, two years have gone by, and you're experiencing new life. That is an amazing thing, by the way. It's not something that any human being can do. It's something that only God does. It's an amazing thing. But many of you, at one point in your life, or now, you've given up on God. At least relationally. Maybe not optics, but relationally. Why? Because you tore up the roof. And you did all this stuff so that you could see Jesus. And when you finally met him, just like this man's friend, you finally met Jesus, all you hear about is your sins need to be forgiven. And you didn't come for that. You didn't come for that. You had prayers. You've been praying for some things. God hasn't answered. You know what prayers are, most of us? Most of us, we treat prayers like this. They're really demands that are clothed in a very insincere posture. You don't think God sees that. And Jesus is saying, until you come to get right with God, until you come for me, not for things, until you come to God to get right with God, nothing else Nothing else that you pray for, nothing else that you want will matter. It's not that he wants to ruin your life or make you unhappy. It just doesn't matter at the end. That's what he's saying. The Pharisees and the teachers of law, they're indignant. In verse 22, Jesus knows what, that, what they're thinking. And basically, he asks them a question in verse 23, which is easier? It's much easier to say, walk. That's what he's saying, basically. It's much easier to say, walk, as opposed to, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. But then he says, but the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The reality is it's very hard to say you're forgiven. Think about it. Even on earth, even us as finite human beings, it's very hard to say you're forgiven. You know why? Because then you've got to take, you've got to absorb the pain that you experience that you want the other person to feel for hurting you. You're taking that back and you're just suffering it alone. It's very hard to say you're forgiven. How do you know? It's very hard for Je Jesus himself is saying, it's very hard to say that you're forgiven. How do we know that? Because when Jesus went to the cross, like this man, he became immobile. He was nailed to a cross. And he, there he experienced the ultimate barrier between himself and God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our sins have been forensically, legally, justly placed on Christ. And he's saying, you're departing from me. Peter says, depart from me. And Jesus says, I'm not going to depart from you. Jesus is crying out, you've departed from me. You left me for dead. I'm, I'm not given freedom here. I'm forsaken. My God, my God, you departed from me, essentially. The leper, somehow he got in. He got into the city and he got back into community. How? Because Jesus Christ, you know that he was, when he was crucified, they took him out of the city. Calvary was cast out of the city. They closed the doors on him. They literally crucified him outside the city. This man got in because Jesus got out. Jesus was cast out. Jesus was left for dead. And Jesus experienced what on the cross? Relational and social and physical and psychological outcastness. 
but more importantly, he experienced spiritual, cosmic separation from God. Cosmic outcastness from God. He became the leper. He became immobile like the paralytic. God had departed from him. Jesus Christ became that spiritual leper. And the reason why he was cast out is so that we could be brought in. The reason why Jesus Christ was rejected was so that we could be accepted. The reason why he was wounded and broken is so that we could be healed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, union, we might become the righteousness of God. Peter said, I'm a sinner. Go away. And Jesus said, you're in on the cross Jesus Christ became sin, and God said, you're out. You're out. What we deserved, he received, so that what he deserved, we could receive. And when you see what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, what are the implications? Very quick, and then we're going to close. One, sometimes God's not going to answer our prayers. Sometimes God's going to feel distant. Sometimes you want to run from God. Sometimes God's not going to go along with your, he's going to go against your expectations. He's not going to go along with your plans or your agenda, but he longs to forgive. He knows that's at the root. So much so that he reached into the filth to touch you and transferred your uncleanness to him and his cleanness to you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Look at the compassion and the invitation and the love and the mercy of Jesus. It is overflowing. And all that we're required to do is what? When you see that, you go to him. When you see that, just go. It doesn't take work to see. But when you see, we go. But it's never on your terms you need to surrender to his agenda. That's one implication. I'm going to give you, a, there's a lot of implications here. I'm just going to give you one more, a practical one. If we get Jesus as a community, if we understand the gospel as a community, if we desire and commit to applying this gospel as a community, if we get this, you will embrace the city. You will embrace the last and the least and the lost because your identity has been transferred no longer about what you do or who you're hanging out with or where you're approved. It's now going to be about your identity in Christ. You are a child of the king. Jesus brought you in, the ultimate in. And if you really have planted that deep, you will then be able to, you will have the boldness to be able to embrace the last. You can take the risks. You will embrace the last in this church and outside. You will embrace the least in this church and outside. You will embrace the lost in this church and outside. The mark of transformation is that it sh the gospel shapes your view of power and wealth and status. And it shapes your view of those who have it and those who don't have it. And you will be willing to reach out and touch those who are marginalized, those who don't have it. That's the mark of transformation. Some people may criticize you for it. Some people will criticize your theology, believe it or not, for it. They will criticize your motives for it. Look, as Christians, the goal is not even to fit in. 
to like that conservative church culture. Now, some of you seminary nerds out there, I'm going to tell you, right, because you're wondering. I am a conservative, reformed, confessional minister. For those of you seminary nerds who understand what those things mean, I'm a conservative, reformed, confessional minister. But make no mistake, Metro will always be about applying the pattern of salvation, the gospel in Jesus, regardless how we are viewed, because we believe it is a mark of transformation, a mark of new life. All three of these men were at Jesus' feet at some point in this text. You know that? That means to the degree that you see Jesus reaching out to you, you will be at Jesus' feet. You will surrender. And then you will reach out as Jesus reached out. You get me? Let's pray.